Well, I'm going to talk while I turn my microphone on so the people at the sound desk don't panic. You can already hear me because we're using this one. Uh, what I want to achieve tonight is to start a conversation going. We're tackling a subject tonight, if you're, if you're not aware, we're looking at what does the Bible say about homosexuality. Uh, and it is a very important subject that we look at together as a church uh, because there's much confusion about it. Now, I know that uh, I cannot even come close to saying all that I want to say tonight. We will be, if I get carried away and I sidetrack off my notes, we will be here till half nine. Uh, and I don't think any of us particularly want, maybe you do want that, but uh, I, I need to get home and get some sleep. I'm not very well. But uh, let's, uh, let's agree that we're, we're going to work pretty hard tonight, okay? Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, a Bible would be really helpful. Uh, there will be people at the back willing to, to bring those around. Also, if you want a pencil or paper, that would also be extremely useful. What, what I want to achieve, as I say, is to start a conversation. I'd like for you to be paying attention to what's being said uh, and, uh, and to come back with questions and to start talking about this more so we can do some more work on this together. So that as a church, we actually are addressing something that has come to the forefront in our culture and has become a dominating issue in our culture. We don't want it to become a dominating issue in our church, but we do want to be able to respond to it in a, in a godly and gracious way. So that's my aim tonight. Now, we are actually, I will warn you in advance, we are actually going to open our Bibles and look at every text in the Bible about homosexuality uh, and more. Uh, but don't panic because that's not very many. And we'll talk more about that uh, later. The reality of the situation that we find ourselves in today is that the world around us has become more and more pro-gay. You can't avoid it. If you watch TV, you will have noticed the frequency of gay relationships on screen is just escalating and escalating all the time. I can't think of a TV series where there isn't some kind of same-sex couple involved in that series. In fact, it has nearly moved on from uh, the issue now uh, because the battle for the minds of our generations has all but been won by the media. That's the situation we're in. It's no longer a matter left up to the individual. So we can't just agree to disagree on this issue anymore. That's not on the table. To condemn a homosexual lifestyle is seen as an evil now in our culture. And to suggest that others might need to repent and to leave that lifestyle is universally condemned, I think now, as abusive and wicked. That's the world we're living in. That's the world that our teenagers are going to school in. That's what they're being confronted with by their classmates. And so as we look at how this impacts the church which is what I'm really concerned about tonight, that we think this through for ourselves, we need to do that with the understanding that this is actually the air that we all breathe throughout the week. This is what's being pumped into our homes. It comes to us through TV, through movies, through YouTube clips, through newspapers, magazines, all of the media every single day. Now, to briefly define terms before we start, I think it's necessary to point out the difference between two things, and you need to listen carefully here, between being same-sex attracted on the one side and living a homosexual lifestyle on the other. 
Very important we see the difference between those. A number of Christians who battle in this area of temptation prefer to avoid the label of calling themselves gay. They don't want to be called by that term. Uh, As Ed Shaw, an author writing on this subject, writes, he says, uh, saying I'm gay is at one level the quickest way of clarifying my sexual orientation in the world today. People instantly think they know what I mean. But the problem is, they don't. So it's a a muddying uh, term to use. Ed says he finds that if he says he's gay, people immediately assume that he's living a gay lifestyle. So he and others in his camp prefer to describe themselves as same-sex attracted. It's a very simple point, but it really does need to be made, doesn't it? It's important we recognise that difference. And it's important that we recognise that this is actually a battle for many godly men and women in our churches today. I have a number of friends who struggle with this. These are genuine believers who find themselves sexually attracted to their own sex and who are convinced, even despite all of that, that the Bible teaches that that attraction is sinful and must not be acted upon. So they're firmly in that camp. How they ended up with that particular besetting sin that plagues them and has plagued them their whole lives, whether it's by nature or by nurture, is really not the issue. But it is a battle for them every day, and we must recognise that, because sin is a battle for us. In a sense, it's the same for all of us, isn't it? All of us must battle with sin every day, with temptation every day. We've been looking at it in the book of James, haven't we? If you are a heterosexual man, you need, and I'll use that as an example because it's it's me, you need to recognise that lustful thoughts for a female who's not your wife is also sinful. And that acting upon that attraction outside of marriage is also very, very wrong. However, there's an added complication for the Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. I'm sure you can understand that. Listen to this. So in his book, The Plausibility Problem, which I have here, it's a very, very good book. I'll recommend this at the end. In his book, Ed Shaw, again, uh, paints two portraits right at the beginning of the book, Peter and Jane. He just wants to rub it in, so he's got two examples. And they're both same-sex attracted Christians. He says this, well, he describes it this way. So Peter is a young man who finds himself sexually attracted to other men. He's been raised in church where he's been clearly taught that sex is only right between a man and a woman in marriage. He's been taught that sex is one of... He's had that talk that you know you get in every youth group where someone comes in, has the talk there, and talks about how what a wonderful and incredible gift sex is, a gift from God, and that if he keeps that gift for marriage, that's where he will get the most out of it. It will be an utter joy for him. He's 17, he lives in a completely sex-obsessed culture, and he longs to be part of that culture. But if he goes along with what his church teaches, that potentially means shutting the door on that part of his life forever. Makes us think, doesn't it? Then you've got Jane. He introduces Jane to us. Jane, he says, is a recent convert who's joined a church after her marriage ended in divorce due to her husband's adultery. She's single and alone. 
until she meets the woman of her dreams, someone who will love her and share their life with her. And then she becomes aware of the church's teaching on homosexuality. Obedience for her will mean ending the best human relationship she's ever been in, a shared home, a family life, an end to loneliness, the physical affection that Jane so needs, and returning for her to her one-bedroom flat, irregular and painful visits to church families for Sunday lunch, the single life, and looking forward to the peace at church because it's the only physical touch she ever gets there. That's the reality, isn't it? Both of them want to remain Christians, but they're being asked to give up so much, and it tugs at our heartstrings, doesn't it? It just doesn't, in Ed's words, seem plausible in our day and age to ask people to do that. Ed Shaw writes this, he says, the evangelical church's basic message to them, to both of those people, is just say no. And that message just doesn't have any real credibility anymore. It embarrasses many of us to even ask them to do it. It sounds positively unhealthy. It lacks any traction in today's world, simply producing incredulity from the majority. He's right, isn't he? That's how it's seen. And this is the point at which, ironically, that Christians like Peter and Jane will then go looking for alternative answers. They'll start clicking on Google and they'll encounter the arguments of the gay Christian movement and gay theologians. And I put gay Christian in quotes because uh, I, I don't, what well, they teach, I don't recognise as a Christian teaching at all and we'll see that together as we go through tonight. These pro-gay theologians, and I want you to understand their perspective, <clears throat> They will point us to scriptures like Romans 13. Uh, you, know, you know the passage. It gets read out at weddings all the time, doesn't it? Romans 13, and listen to what eight, verses 8 to 10 say. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And they'll quote that verse. And that's their grounding. One proponent, a guy called Justin Lee, who's the founder of the Gay Christian Network, then comments on those verses and says this. With those standards in mind, love for neighbour it became much easier to interpret scripture's difficult passages consistently. Yes, there were slaves in Bible times, but doesn't selfless agape love demand their freedom? Rules about head coverings and hair length had a purpose in Paul's culture. But if they have no ultimate bearing on our commission to selflessly love God and our neighbours, then led by the Spirit, we can safely set them aside. These teachers then seek to apply the same standards to homosexuality. They say that they recognise, of course, that 
there were different types of homosexual behavior in Bible times, and some of them were driven by selfish um, uh, and driven by selfish motivations and, and by flesh, but, but not true love. Things like rape and prostitution and exploitation of children. They recognized that there was that kind of side to it in the Bible times. But this chap, Lee, continues. Suppose, though, two people loved each other with all their hearts and they wanted to commit themselves to each other in the sight of God, to love, honor, and cherish, to selflessly serve and encourage one another, to serve God together, to be faithful for the rest of their lives. If they were of opposite sexes, we would call that holy and beautiful and something to celebrate. But if we changed one thing, the gender of one of those individuals, whilst keeping the same love and selfless commitment, suddenly many Christians would call it abominable and condemned to hell. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, as I, as I read through more and more of this material, it really does pull at your heart and you think, I see it from their point of view. And here is really where the debate is today. Is the Bible, and I think this is what I want to boil it down to from the reading that I've done, is the Bible actually only condemning abusive, exploitative forms of homosexuality? Is the, is the door open a crack for, for other forms? Does the prohibition of scripture actually include all forms of homosexuality? even those that take place in loving, committed, faithful, same-sex relationships. That's the issue that we need to deal with. That is the issue that you'll be confronted with in the church today. Now, this is my first section. This is, that's the introduction, really, to, to what I want to say. And I've titled that Confusion. It is confusion. It's utter confusion. And I want us to look at the Word of God now and to get our Bibles open and to see if we can find some clarity. As I say, I am going to try and do this quickly uh, and efficiently, and I'm going to miss lots of things. Talk to me afterwards. I would love to get into a conversation uh, with you about these things. So let's look at the biblical data. As um, some of the, the new sort of uh, teachers on YouTube are quite fond of saying, facts don't care about your feelings. It's very true, isn't it? We need to look at the data and see what it's really saying without muddying the water with how we feel about it. And that's what I want us to try and do as we go through the Bible now, to see what it's really saying. What is God actually saying in the Bible? Uh, so first of all, turn to the first chapter of the Bible. We just had it read to us. Here you've got, in what we've just had read, some foundational information about how we were made in the beginning. This is how God intends us to think about ourselves. This is information that predates Abraham and the nation of Israel. This is universal information founded in the creation account. This is applicable to every single one of us, wherever we come from or whatever age we live in. Have a look with me. Genesis 1 verse 26 again. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let us rule over the fish of the sea and the birds, let, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air 
and, every, uh, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Data that we've just gathered right now. So right from the first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God creates mankind with two sexes. This is very clear, isn't it? Male and female. No third option is given. Male and female. And he gave them verbal instructions in verse 28. What are the instructions? Increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it and rule over all the creatures. That's a job to be done. So we're made a particular way and with a particular purpose. So far, so straightforward. As you move to chapter 2 then, what you have in chapter 2 is, is not a second creation account. It, it is like it's the same creation account, but we've moved the camera around a little bit. We've zoomed in and we're going to replay and see the details of what just happened, what we saw just happen. We read, it, we read in verse 18 that in a perfectly good creation, there is one thing God says is not good, and that is for the man to be alone. He's on his own at this point. No suitable partner can be found, found for the man, and so he creates the perfect one, the designed one. Having put Adam into a deep sleep, God forms the first woman from a rib taken from Adam's side. And in the very next scene, what you actually have at the end of chapter 2 is quite beautiful. It's the first wedding ceremony in the Bible. God plays the role of father of the bride. And he brings the bride to the groom, Adam standing there. As soon as Adam lays eyes upon his bride, he is utterly smitten. You know, if you look at uh, how the ch chapter's laid out, you'll see it, it's set as a sort of separate paragraph there at the end of the chapter. It, it's poetry. Uh, I don't know what language it was in originally, but this is him waxing lyrical about the, the object of beauty that he's just seen walking through the, well, not down through the door, down, down through the garden. And he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we get the creation mandate the instruction that follows god's pattern based on this marriage that will be the pattern for every marriage that follows afterwards verse 24 for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife or woman and they will become one flesh here's the point Marriage, right from the start, is the union of one man and one woman together becoming one flesh. That's the design. It's, it's laid out in a beautiful story right at the beginning. And you see the logic in it all. The woman is taken, sort of taken from the man. So that in one sense, their union is not just a union, but is a reunion. It's a putting back together. She is dissimilar and yet similar, a perfect partner fitting for the man to make a one flesh union with. That's the pattern the Bible lays out for marriage. It's also the pattern that Jesus picks up uh, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, which we'll look at in a little while. That's, so this is our groundwork. Now, I want us to, uh, having laid down that pattern, to move on to the next and actually the first text concerning how that gets perverted and twisted. So we're going to look at, first of all, at um, the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, ha we have to go there. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 18, if you've got your Bible open. 
and I'm going to try and pick up the pace somewhat. Let me set the scene very, very quickly for you. Abraham receives a visit from the Lord with two angels, and he discloses what he is about to do. Pick it up with me at Genesis 18, verse 20. The Lord said, he's speaking to, uh, to uh, Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what, is, if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And so in chapter 19, with that as our introduction, we read about the visit of those two angels to the city of Sodom. They arrive at the gate where Abraham's nephew Lot intercepts them and he brings them to stay in his home. He doesn't want them staying anywhere else. And in verse 4, we read the following. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Now notice it's only, only the men of the city of Sodom that come. They're the only ones involved. And their interest is only in the men of the house. It's a painfully, clearly laid out story. Now this is not a story that I would want to run to too quickly when discussing, discussing the issues that we're dealing with. Because actually what you have in this story it is a horrific story of attempted rape, homosexual rape, which doesn't really address the issue being put in front of us of loving, consensual, faithful homosexual relationships. Quite clearly that the gay theologian can sweep this one aside if they want. But Sodom, what we learn from this, Sodom was a very wicked town. And I think that the story illustrates what happens when people utterly reject God and spiral down into sin. That's what we're seeing in this story. Sodom shows us a picture of what it looks like near the bottom of that spiral. And a major characteristic is the twisting and warping of God's initial design of sexual desires. And we're going to see it again as we get to Romans chapter 1 in just a moment. This story then warns us, it gives us a warning sign that you are ripe for judgment. When you are ripe for judgment, you will see a wholesale distortion of sexuality. But what seems like quite a straightforward passage is attacked by special pleading, which insists that the real sin of the city of Sodom, of course, is a, is a lack of concern for the poor and bad hospitality skills, inhospitality. Believe it or not, that is what we're told. So the gay theologian will quote Ezekiel chapter 16. You can look it up if you like, but I'll read it out to you. Ezekiel chapter 16 says this, the prophet writes, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty. And that's generally where the gay theologian will leave it and tell you, look, the sin of Sodom was, was, a, was bad hospitality and exploitation of the poor. They don't, however, finish off verse 50. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. 
If you look at that verse, uh, verse 60, the word detestable is used there. And it's the same word that we'll see just in a moment that's used in Leviticus to describe the sexual sins, which include homosexuality, for which the land of Canaan vomited out its inhabitants. But actually, more conclusively, the New Testament writers understood the story of Sodom differently. They understood the characteristically sexual nature of their offences. In Jude, verses 7 to 8, we read this. In a similar way, he's talking about the false teachers and their condemnation. And Jude writes this, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Jude's not confused about what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, and neither should we be. We'll move on. We're going to flick on. We're going to go to Leviticus, and this is a very important passage. Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, There should be some points coming up here. Yeah, it's good. I'm trying to put up on the screen just the salient points I want you to get from each of these references as we look them up. Leviticus chapter 18. Let me just read to you from verse 21 and listen carefully. This is from what's called the Holiness Code. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relationships, uh, relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. Because this is how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. And the land was defiled, even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living amongst you must not do any of these detestable things, for all of these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. What have we got here? Well, very basically, you have a list, a chapter full of commands, don't you? Uh, All about uh, the holiness of the people. Chapter 18 is really a catalogue of prohibited sexual relations. It's just all listed there for you. All the family members are there, all the relatives, and even the animals. Everyone and everything that you shouldn't sleep with is just spelled out there for the people. And included in verse 22 is a very explicit, spelled out reference to homosexuality. Uh, It's just the actual act of homosexuality is just plainly laid out there for us in the verse. Verses 24 to 27 then, and this is important to look at, explain what's going on. They explain that it was these acts that defiled the original inhabitants of the land, so much so that the Lord says that the the land is vomiting them out. In other words, this defilement is the reason that God is using Israel to judge them. God's judgment's coming on them. Now, they're they're not Israel. They're not under God's law, these people. This is, they're only under a natural law of what we know by our conscience is right and wrong. And they're being judged for it. 
They've broken the creation mandate that God gave. Now note a couple of things. These commands were not just, even in these verses, commands only for the people of Israel to live by. Look at verse 26. The foreigners living in the land had to obey them. Another indication of the universal nature of the offence. Also note, the homosexuality here is argued by the gay theologian to refer only actually to cult prostitution, and we've completely missed the point of this holiness code. It's all to do with going to shrines and temples where there are male prostitutes. And hence, they say, look at verse 21. You've got child sacrifice in the middle of the list. Look, it's all cultic, it's all Molech worship. We're just being told not to do Molech worship. In other words, we're not talking here about a committed and faithful context. But that's actually refuted in chapter 20, where exactly the same command is repeated, and there is no such reference at all to anything cultic. It stands on its own, and in actual fact, it's even stronger. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a woman as one... uh, Lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They, will be, they must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. God is taking the purity of his people very seriously. And this sin is treated with the utmost seriousness. And it is talking about all forms of homosexual behavior. That's what it's saying. And it brings on the Israelite the death penalty. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. And actually, we've dealt with the Old Testament. It's not a lot, was it? That's actually all the references in, in the Old Testament to homosexuality. But I just want, I want to break, uh, as we go into the New Testament, and have a look. What did Jesus say? Because sometimes we sort of think, well, you know, the Old Testament's a little bit brutal and bloody and violent, but you've got Jesus, and he was, he was lovely. What did Jesus say? And some argue Jesus had absolutely nothing to say about homosexuality, never mentioned it. Even if that were true, it proves very little, though, because Jesus didn't say anything about bestiality either. Not mentioning something is quite different from endorsing it, giving it the stamp of approval. But I don't think that Jesus did ignore this issue. Let me tell you what he said. I think he said three things. Have a look at what they are. Uh, You can follow them all in Matthew's Gospel. So if you want to flick over to Matthew, and Matthew chapter 5, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the first point. Jesus affirmed the law, including what we just read in Leviticus. Jesus put his stamp of approval on that. Have a look at what he says in verse 17 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is very clear. He upholds the law in all of its details. In fact, if anything, Jesus raised the standards of the law to an even higher level. He did that in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look a little bit further down, he goes on to say, listen, his reasoning is anger, anger in your heart's as bad as murder. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You're angry without just cause. It's like murder in your heart. He says to look with lust at a woman is to commit adultery in your heart. That's the first thing. Jesus affirmed and even raised the standards of the law. Second thing is this. Jesus identified all illicit sex as things that defile us. All acts of illicit sex as things that defile us. In Matthew 15, if you want to flick over, and it is repeated in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking about what defiles us and makes us unclean. He's making a definitive statement on it. Matthew 15 verse 19 says this, Jesus says, he's talking about whether foods make you unclean, and he's arguing a different point, do you remember? He says this, look, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Those are the things that make us unclean, says Jesus, the things that come out of our hearts. Now, the word that is used in both Matthew and Mark when he says this for, for sexual immorality there is porneia. It's a plural form of the word. In other words, it means sexual immoralities. And it's only ever used in the whole of the New Testament in just these passages where, Mark's, where, where Jesus is talking, in Mark and Matthew. Just here. One uh, commentator on the language says this. This refers comprehensively to all sexual acts outside of marriage. Which, as we already know, consists only of the union of a man and a woman in Jewish biblical law in Jesus' day. According to Jesus, then, all sexual acts outside of marriage make us unclean. Third thing Jesus said is he made a definitive statement about God's intent in marriage. He reinforced what was said in Genesis. You can find that in Matthew chapter 19 if you want to flick over to it. And there Jesus lays out again for us God's design for marriage. He's answering his critics in uh, Matthew 19 who've come up to him to ask about divorce. And Jesus says this to them. In verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife or woman, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. In short, Jesus affirms Genesis. He affirms the law, he affirms Genesis. We were made by God. And God created only two genders. The creator made them male and female, says Jesus. And marriage then is the unique union of a man and a woman, two becoming one flesh in the way that only a man and woman can. And that's a union which God himself blesses and unites together. So in summary then, what does Jesus say about the issue? Well, he says this. He says the law still stands. All sex outside of marriage defiles us, and the only legitimate form of marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Okay? Romans. I'm trying to get through this nice and quickly. Romans chapter 1. You'll be able to tell everyone, hey, we looked at everything the Bible said about homosexuality. We may not have looked at it in much detail. <laughs> now, I would love to spend a long time in this passage. I can't, because uh, time is very, very short now. Paul is talking about mankind in general in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 1. And he has described the unbelieving world 
as those who are under the wrath of God because they suppress the truth about him. In other words, his argument is this, that they know God exists and yet they choose to dismiss God as irrelevant. They swap the truth for a lie. They exchange the living God for created things. That's the argument. I guess you're probably familiar with it. Let's pick it up at verse 24 and just see what Paul says there. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men uh, committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Uh, Have a look at what's being said here. Twice Paul repeats the phrase that because people dismiss and refuse to honour God, he gives them over, he hands them over to their sinful desires. And that's in verse 24. And in verse 26, to shameful lusts, he says. In essence, God says, if what you wish is to wallow in your sin, then your punishment will be to do just that. Your sin will consume you. That's your judgment. Verses 26 and 27 couldn't be more clear in what they're describing. Both men and women abandoning God's natural, created design and engaging in homosexual activity. And this is probably, possibly, the clearest symptom of mankind in rebellion against God, which is what we saw in Sodom, wasn't it? Described in the NIVs that we have in the church as shameful, indecent, degrading, and a perversion. All of those words in Romans chapter 1. That's how that activity is described. And again, despite attempts of the gay theologians to paint that text also in the light of pagan Roman cultic practices again, and therefore only really about abusive relationships, note a few things. First of all, the language used in verses 26 and 27 shows mutuality. Both parties are consenting. They're lusting for each other. It's a voluntary act of abandoning and exchanging what is natural because of lust for one another that is being described there. Also note, Paul gives no indication that these things are part of some kind of ritual idol worship in Rome. He ends the section, actually, if you look at it, with a portrait of all of mankind in rebellion against God with another massive catalogue of sins, a list including greed, envy, gossip, slander, disobeying your parents, hardly the exclusive realm of cultic idol worship. Those things are characteristic of all mankind in rebellion against God. Let's move quickly on. hope you're taking notes. <laughs> can get lots of questions. Finally then, let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. I'm going to look particularly just at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, really, I've put 1 Timothy chapter 1 in there because in verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we get a particular word used that is also used here in 1 Corinthians 6. Both of them written by Paul uh, and both of them talking about the sins of mankind. Have a look at, uh, and try and follow this logic here. So 1 Corinthians 6, we'll just look at verse 9 and onwards. 
I'm going to speed up. Do you not know, says Paul, that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the guilty, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's two words used here for, and as we read them in the version we just read, they are male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. And the original words for those get disputed by people. They're the words malakoi and arsenokoite. If you've tried to keep up with the arguments of what's going on here, you'll probably be familiar with those words. The second of those words, arsenokoitai, is used in both of the passages, here and in 1 Timothy, chapter 1. And it gets translated in the NIV here as homosexual offenders in 1 Corinthians 6, and as, for some reason, the NIV's gone with perverts in 1 Timothy 1. But it's the identical word. There's no real case for them putting perverts in there. I don't know why they did it. The ESV, on the other hand, is consistent and just uses the phrase men who practice homosexuality in both places. Arsenokoitai. Now, listen, with that word, there is no record of that word known in Greek, in any Greek literature, before Paul used it here. And most scholars actually believe the Apostle Paul invented the word to communicate. Now, try and follow this. In 1 Corinthians, what's going on in that letter, especially in this section, is Paul is is addressing issues of discipline within the Corinthian church, and especially in chapters 5 and 6, in the area of their morality or lack thereof. Paul expects the people receiving his letter in Corinth to have in mind the holiness code that we just read in Leviticus 18 and 20 as he admonishes them. Why do I say that? Am I just plucking it out of the air? No. Because he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 7, 17, verse 7. You can write that down if you like. Deuteronomy 17, verse 7 says this. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 15, when he says, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from amongst you. He wants them to have in mind where he's coming from, from the holiness code in Leviticus. Did I say Deuteronomy? I meant Leviticus. Paul then expects them to pick up on the Leviticus language being used as he proceeds. It's very likely Paul invented this new word using two words found in Leviticus in the Septuagint. That's the Greek Old Testament that he and his readers would have used. It's found particularly in chapter 20, verse 13, that we looked at earlier. In chapter 20, verse 13 of Leviticus, two words are side by side in the Greek version, arsonus and coiton, describing in that verse men or males who lie with males sexually. That's basically what the term means. That's the case put forward then for what the Bible says about homosexuality. And we have covered all of the verses and it's very late. 
I want to um, <clears throat> try and make a few conclusions for us, so please bear with me. It leads us, and well, it leads some people, when they look at the accumulated evidence here and see that there's actually, what, there's only like six places to look at in the whole Bible. Some people then say, look, the Bible doesn't say very much on this topic, and they're kind of right. The Bible doesn't seem to be particularly bothered with this issue. If it were, there'd be more to go on. We'd have an ex some more explicit sort of stuff on it. But the weight of all of these texts that we've looked at has led others to conclude that what you actually see happening in the Bible is the Bible is a heterosexual book. The whole book is heterosexual. One author illustrates it like this. He says, let's say you buy a new cookbook featuring healthy dessert recipes, none of which use sugar. In her introduction to the book, the author explains her reasons for avoiding sugar products, telling you that you will find sumptuous sweet dessert recipes, but all without sugar. And so throughout the rest of the book, the word sugar doesn't occur a single time, not once. Would it be right to conclude that avoiding sugar was not important to the author. To the contrary, it was so important that every single recipe in the book makes no mention of sugar. And we see a similar thing happening in the Bible. Now, much more could be said, but I want to finish by looking at how we should respond to all of this. First, in the light of all of this, how do we respond to the confused world that we live in? As with all interactions with people, it depends on what we're confronted with. Every interaction will be different, won't it? Some people will be violent. Some people might actually want to listen to what we've got to say. The funny thing is, is that a reversal's happened, hasn't it? In that we're being accused, we're being intolerantly accused of being intolerant. And nobody wants to actually even hear what we say. They don't tolerate us enough to actually even listen to us. But the world that you and I live in, as we said earlier, is no longer content to ignore the fact that we have a different view on this subject. We're under increasing pressure to conform to what the world believes. And if you don't comply, you will be vilified. The world's come to see the traditional biblical line that we just looked at on this subject as thoroughly evil. If you make a stand on what the Bible says and what we've heard tonight, you'll be compared, and I'm not even kidding about this, you'll be compared to a Nazi or a member of the Ku Klux Klan. That's where it's going. And you wait and see if, if uh, it doesn't get more so. Introducing Jesus at the start of his gospel, the Apostle John writes this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is what we need to emulate as we try to tackle this subject in the world. We need hearts full of love and we need spines full of steel. That's what we need in this world. Because the world is going to hate us for having a biblical point of view on this subject. Later in John's Gospel, he warns his disciples, if the world hates you, have in mind it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as your own, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but you have been chosen out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. 
Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. See, we can't afford to bow out on this issue and we cannot compromise because souls are at stake on this. To redefine sin is extremely dangerous ground for a Christian to be on. It's, it's treacherous ground. As followers of Jesus, we've got to let our light shine in the darkness of what's happening to our world. And we must do that even if they're going to hate us. But we must never speak the truth without love. Unfortunately, the perception of the world uh, again, it, it, well, it's, it's, it's against us from the word go, isn't it? Everybody's got in their minds an image of something coming from somewhere like Westboro Baptist, uh, where you've got the, the types like that, you know, God hates fa- that, sort, that sort of horrific thing going on. And that's what people will think of us. It makes our job so hard, but it doesn't make our job impossible. And in thinking about how we should respond, I would suggest our starting point is to recognise that we ourselves have been saved from a self-destructive rejection of God in ourselves. You know, there but for the grace of God go we, don't we? Do you have a realistic opinion of yourself, view of yourself? Do you see the sin in yourself? Let me read to you those words from Ephesians chapter 2. We know them so well. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's you. All of us, says Paul, also lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That is every Christian being described there. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you and I have been saved. And so first and foremost, we need to remember that. We were sinners. We have been saved by grace. And therefore, shouldn't we be rooting for all other sinners that they might be saved too? Praying that they might come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved? Are you doing that? That's the first thing we need to do in response to all of this. Our attitude should be gentle and loving and compassionate. And we should be prepared to be rejected and yelled at and abused. That's going to happen. Many in the gay community themselves have traumatic tales to tell of being treated abusively and hatefully, don't they? It happens on both sides. And our hearts should break for that. That is not fitting behaviour for anyone who bears the name of Christ. Above all, as we speak the truth in love, we've got to be confident that God can and does change people by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the gospel. You need to believe that. Otherwise, we've got nothing really to say, have we? Nothing except condemnation. Those words that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 6, you see, are full of hope. Did you see it? After Paul describes that list of habitual sins, the decided lifestyle that disqualifies people from God's kingdom, that keeps them out of God's kingdom, he writes in verse 11, that's what some of you were. You were like that, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. 
So yes, according to that verse, history proves that former homosexual offenders, along with all the other lists of sinners there, have indeed become part of God's kingdom. Just like us, having put their trust in Christ, they were washed clean of their guilt and shame. They've been set apart as his and justified, that is declared righteous in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Same for us. There are many stories you can read of people whom God has saved, who struggled with same-sex attraction, and God's taken away that distorted desire and healed them. But equally, there are many who have repented and come to Christ and still face that battle daily. And they need to be encouraged, just as we all do, to find their identity in Christ and not to turn to anything else and not to give up on the scriptures. Well, I wish I had more time to give to this. We have to finish now. It's not possible on one Sunday evening, but let me just give you one further challenge. And just to pick up on what we said to start with, with those two little portraits I gave. Can we offer Christians who want to faithfully follow Jesus, but who struggle in this area, something more than just say no? Can we give them something more than that? And the answer is, I believe, firmly is a yes, but it's going to take some work. We can all play our part, though, in making obedience to the word of God a more plausible option for people who struggle in this area. And we'll do that by genuinely loving them, by seeking, and this is important, to really understand what they're going through, what their needs are, and try to get a handle on how their unfilled desires feel. Amongst other things, we can provide deep friendships for people, can't we? We can provide loving homes to welcome them into. And we can, prevent, we can provide that strengthening fellowship that they need as we walk with them on the road that they must travel. You know, my boys don't really know how many of the blokes that came to our home in Kingston were struggling in that area. They were welcome in our home. I have a, a number of friends who struggled in this area back in, in Kingston. I asked one of them once uh, what sorts of things he found hardest about his battle. And he replied to me, it was the lack of physical contact with anyone. He never had physical contact. And we made it a habit to always have a man hug whenever we met. He says it helped. These are needy people. And the church has got to respond. We've got to make it plausible for people who struggle like this to be part of this wonderful family that we ought to be able to invite them into. Now, each case will be different, but love has got to drive us to find out about them and to care enough to help. I would highly commend to you to read through this book if you're interested in trying to respond to the needs of, of the gay community or the same-sex attracted community. Please do look this up. Have a good read to it. It's very challenging stuff. Well, that starts our conversation. Uh, and we're going to follow this up in perhaps a different forum uh, and look a little bit more in a bit more detail at some of these issues at a later date. But let me pray as we close. Father, we do thank you for your grace to us. 
We thank you that you are the saviour of sinners. And we fully recognise that we're the, we, we were the worst of them. And yet, Lord, there being nothing lovely about us, you gave your life for your enemies. You gave your life for those who are in rebellion against you, just like we are and we were. Thank you, Lord, that there is hope and there is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ for the worst of sinners like us. And we pray, Lord, that you would move our hearts with compassion, that we would follow your example with words full of grace and truth to befriend, to support, to comfort, and to win our brothers and sisters who are struggling in, with, with this particular sin. Lord, help us to think clearly. And we do pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would give us hearts full of love and spines full of steel as we go into the world. We ask this in your name. Amen.